Welcome into this Five Clubs Conversation. I'm Gary Williams. It's great to have you with us this week. You know, last week, Billy Horschel, and obviously that was a heartfelt conversation between two guys talking about something that uh, is intensely personal, but happy to share. This week, happy to share somebody with you that you're probably already enjoying in some form or fashion. You know, for me, I've been very fortunate over my career to have the chance to talk to a lot of people, and whether it's people who, who play uh, different games or different sports, or people who cover it, people who write about it, or, or people who call the games themselves, I'm always curious about their perspective on things and also what they potentially add to the overall ecosystem of each particular sport they might be playing or covering. Five years ago, if you said to me, there's going to be somebody who's going to come along who's going to join an outfit that is prominent and noteworthy in all sports but had no real traction or footing in the game of golf, and you're going to fast forward five years, and they're going to be people at a Ryder Cup. They're going to be barking out and screaming out his name each and every hole that he walks following a group, and that he is going to have a following on social media akin to a number of the top players in the game. Plus, he is going to provide a platform for those players to share their thoughts on, the, on their careers, on their professional lives, on their personal lives, and people are going to be interested. I'd say, you know, that's probably going to be hard sledding because the game of golf uh, has quite the firewall when it comes to the inclusion of outsiders. And the guy that's going to join me today, I would say that when he was playing college hockey at Harvard, that he was uh, definitely an outsider. And even when he got into golf, and even to, in some circles still today, he may consider to be an outsider. I'm talking about Riggs from Barstool. And when I saw him come onto the scene, I was doing a, a daily television show on, on Golf Channel, and I was not curious. I was fascinated by how they were doing it, the manner in which uh, they were gaining access. And access is really everything when you think about uh, the, the world of sports, access to the athletes that you cover, access to the events that those athletes are participating in. Well, he has not only become somebody who is impactful and worthwhile in the game, he has become a bona fide asset in the game of golf. With that, we welcome in the man who I just called an asset to the game of golf from Ballstool Sports, Sports, the foreplay pod, Riggs himself. Good morning, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing great, Gary. I appreciate you having me. I uh, asset. I appreciate it. I don't know if I've ever been called that before, but I appreciate that. It feels good. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. And I don't know when when you decided that you wanted to go in this direction. That you were your goal setting was that of becoming an asset to the game of golf. I think you are. Um, I, but let's go back. Let's go back to to those early days. Um, first of all, your curiosity in golf began when. You know, I played uh, a decent amount as a as a young kid, um, following my dad around golf courses, around driving ranges like most people. My dad's a bit of a grinder, so he always liked to go to the range more than he liked to play. So we would go hit balls. We'd have little chipping and putting contests. But hockey became my main sport, so that kind of dominated. It was more of a time, too, when, you know, single sport focus um, w was a bigger thing. And so I just pretty much committed all my time to hockey. So from, you know, God, when I was maybe – 12, 13 years old until I was probably 17 or 18, 
it was mostly hockey. I didn't play much golf or any golf really at all. And then my older brother got into it when he went to college, young kid, you always want to do what your, your older brother's doing. So I would say, you know, once I was bad, probably 16, 17, I started to get really into it. Now I'm 34. So pretty much my entire adult life, I've been obsessed with golf and that's because my brother's obsessed with golf too. You know, it, it's interesting and you're right. I, I have older sisters. And so, you know, from a sporting standpoint, I, I was doing what my dad loved to do. You obviously, you know, you had a brother who had an affinity for the game of golf. Even though you may not have been playing, were, were you watching golf as a kid? Especially uh, Tiger Woods, you know, because I came uh, when I was, I'm born in 1987. So when I'm, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, it's right in the Tiger Woods heyday, right in that 2000 period and and everything that obviously Tiger Woods was doing in his prime. So, so yeah, of course, as a sports fan, very obsessed with it. Um, I just didn't in that period play as much as, you know, I, I play now. I wasn't as obsessed with all the intricacies of the game and trying to get better and courses like we are now, which is such an enormous part of being a golf fan. Um, but the combination of Tiger Woods, of my dad and then eventually my brother um, getting me into it has has pretty much led me to get the the golf bug that we all know of where you're obsessed with every single aspect of the game from the pro game to your own game to the different um, you know courses equipment apparel um, and basically consuming your entire life so the fact that somehow I've been able to parlay that into a career in a game where I don't think I've played a single round of competitive golf in my life um, is probably something I've never, ever, ever would have imagined. You know, you are, and I, I think there's a generation, I think you would agree with me, that, that Tiger spawned. I actually think he spawned multiple generations uh, of, of golfers. Do you remember how the game was covered, whether that made you more interested? Did the game feel exclusive? Uh, were there challenges for you intellectually that 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 – were, were things that you had to deal with as far as your, your real interest level and in maybe participating? I think that the early on when I really um, started to get back into it, the biggest barrier to kind of that reentry at the time that I recall was just being bad at the game and how frustrating that was, you know, as a, as again, 16, 17 year old hockey was a big part of my life. I was very good at that. School was a big part of my life. I was very good at that. Um, and then I was trying to get into this game golf because I'd watched Tiger Woods. I got so excited about um, the the energy level that was around the game of golf, largely because of him. And you'd see him hit these little stingers and have full control um, on the course and everything that he did. And then to be bad at the game was incredibly frustrating. And so now, you know, if I play rounds of golf with people and but my buddies will still tell stories and laugh about kind of the older version of me where I got really, really frustrated. I demanded a lot out of myself. I was known to, you know, come off the ice sometimes playing hockey. I'd break a stick over the boards if we gave up a, a poor goal or something because I, I demand a lot of myself. And then you go to this game where, you know, as we all know, a lot of times the harder that you actually try, the worse that you play and the more frustrated that you get. And having this sort of positive, enjoyable attitude tends to lead to better golf. But it took me a few years to fully realize that. And it was a little bit of a evolution of kind of understanding the other important, real, truly important parts of the game and that nobody on earth really cares at all what you shoot or how well you play, <laughs> except for yourself in certain instances. And so I would say, you know, right away, that was that was maybe the the only negative in my mind. And, and, you know, we did go play public courses. We never belonged anywhere growing up, but I actually thought that the exclusivity of the game 
always kind of hung there as a positive to me at the time, because you always were striving towards it. Like if mm-hmm. you got to play one of these courses, I grew up in the St. Louis area, you know, a, a Bell Reeve or, or a persimmon woods was a course that we were whispers that a few of our buddies, parents were members out there. And I was always like, man, if we can get invited out there, that would, that would be the best part of the whole summer. What do we got to do? Let's, let's, who do we got to, you know? And, and so, yes, it was, we were just as happy to go play these, $20, $30 courses, get the best deal that you possibly could um, play as many holes as you could play an hour after sunset and then try to give the cart guys a few bucks because you felt horrible about it, but there's no way you were coming off the golf course. And it was always cool that something hung out there that was more achievable and that you would have in theory, you know, if, if you did everything right and, and you met the right people and you kept kind of trying to network that maybe you could get on one of these courses. We always kind of looked at that as a, as a, um, such an intriguing part of golf, um, not as a negative part, but then again, we're also pretty privileged white dudes that lived in Missouri. So it wasn't, you know, for us that again, that was kind of a cool achievable thing. Um, but I totally can see how it's not necessarily always considered a positive for everyone or even for growing the game overall. But for us, we always looked at it that way. How about now? Do, do you look at it? And I'm, I'm guessing you don't, but the fact that you didn't look at it when you were in your adolescence as being, you know, a barrier and a negative that you looked at it more aspirationally. Is that the way you still look at it? Yeah, definitely. I think so. And I think, you know, we've had a lot of funny conversations on our show about that feeling that you still get when you show up to um, a really nice private club and it might be walking on eggshells it might be just you're just trying to look like you don't feel inside which is that you don't you don't know if you're supposed to be there. you don't know if they can tell that you're not supposed to be there that you're not usually there um and and that's just the feeling that kind of these these private clubs have and again i think that you know for for us we've talked about um the cypress or an augusta and how Every place can't be like that. Otherwise, golf really won't exist. And it's really cool how golf is over in the UK more so where, you know, the the it's almost more for everyone. And there's a lot of clubs where, you know, the, our caddies that we had at St. Andrews would go caddy for us on, on Saturday. And then they invited us to their club that their members at on Sunday. And we all went and played this place, even links. And, and that's a totally different vibe. It's really important, I think, for golf overall to have more of that. But I also, I think it is in in terms of just the intrigue and kind of this you're always trying to achieve courses people are trying to play top 100 people are trying to do this or that whatever those little goals are where you're trying to play golf um as kind of a normal amateur weekend golfer um there are a few places that were you know i i sort of hold the viewpoint of like yeah they should make me feel like i'm walking on eggshells like that's i totally i get it i you know and 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 you again you almost kind of get that butterfly feeling when you're walking around of like oh boy this is something a little bit special and I think that golfers kind of innately chase that feeling a little bit when you arrive at a place and everywhere does it a little differently but yeah I've always kind of viewed it that way have you noticed as your profile has been raised significantly over the last five years that that whether it was going back to the same place for a second time or just the, the, the acceptance level, and I've always thought this, and I've said this to professional staffs, that that first impression is lasting, and that remember whether they're an unaccompanied guest or, or they're being accompanied by a guest, I mean, that, that, that experience is going to be a lasting one. Have you noticed that from the moment you get to places now, that uh, whether it's an acceptance level or a comfort level, that it's changed? 
Yeah, I think so. I definitely think so. I think, you know, uh, our status in the game of golf has probably changed that it's, and, and not even necessarily with, um, throughout entire golf clubs, but if, if we show up somewhere, right, our, our kind of people, the, the common man, the common woman are the, usually the people that, uh, greet you, that take your bag, that are the staff that kind of make the places go. And so there's always a good chance that, that some of them are going to know who we are. So that helps. And then I would also say that I think it's kind of the evolution, the progression that's been going on, um, in our country as a whole, but especially in golf where it is, um, moving towards people understanding that it's about having fun. It's about, um, inclusion, not exclusion. You shouldn't feel with golf, you know, like you're not supposed to be somewhere. If anybody feels like that, um, outside of just the club holding a little bit of prestige. Like I said earlier, there always will be a few that do that. I think that's kind of cool, but for other reasons, if anyone ever feels that um, that's a terrible thing and golf has a long history of that. And I think the, the entire game has over the last five, 10 years really um, felt like it's progressing more towards having fun. You're seeing more people listen to music on the golf course. You're seeing uh, some clubs even have speakers built into their golf yeah. carts now because they're so fully embracing that culture. And it's not that you should be blasting music and affecting everyone around you and, and forcing your musical choices on them while they're trying to enjoy their day outside. Um, but that overall um, progression and sort of, of evolution in the game, I think has naturally, um, you know, either allowed or forced some clubs to kind of open up that feeling, um, be more accepting, have people the minute they arrive. You know, I, I always say that there's certain places where when you arrive, you feel like the club feels like they're lucky to have you. And there's other places you show up where it feels like the club wants you to think that you are lucky to be there. And there's a huge difference. Um, and I think more clubs, luckily, fortunately, are moving more towards giving off that vibe of like, you know, man, we're really lucky to have you here today. We hope you have the best time. Um, and I think that that wasn't the case, not even that long ago, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I think it was way more common for clubs to, again, kind of make you feel a little bit like you're lucky to be here for the day. Um, and I'm just happy it's kind of going the other way. Yeah, I, I share that feeling. I, and I think that your timeline is accurate. If you look over the last 10 to 15 years, um, if, if you look at the different dynamics that have kind of started to melt these various paradigms, I, I mean, I attribute you guys as, as being one of them. I, I do, but there, I think there are others. When you look around and as you've immersed yourself in the game personally and professionally, what do you think the reasons are that we're seeing what I think is a real dynamic shift in the industry of the game? Well, I think it's, it's a few things, you know, I, maybe we've helped it a little bit, but I don't know that we could have helped it on, on the scale that it's, that it's truly kind of changing. I think a lot of that is sort of my generation and the generation even coming up, you know, after me is a lot more, um, it feels like that they're less uh, of a plop down sort of generation. They're uh, out and moving. They're renting Airbnbs. They're trying to see different cities. They're trying to see different towns. They go on trips. Um, you know, if we're talking golf, they go on buddies trips or gals trips more frequently than, you know, past generations who have largely kind of joined a country club, spent, you know, uh, gone up there for dinner every night, spent Saturday at the pool with the family playing golf in the morning. And that's pretty much where they go and where they play a huge percentage of their rounds. And I think that now that, you know, our generation is, is shifting more again towards this, 
we don't plop down as much. We, we jump around, people take jobs in different cities, people work remotely that then allows them this flexibility. Some of that came from the pandemic, but this flexibility to go to different places, to work from different places, to kind of manage their own schedule, however they want. And that's not as conducive to places, again, kind of cultivating the same or similar membership for a long period of time. And so clubs have been a little bit forced to be like, hey, we need to showcase that our place is is fun, that it's incredibly enjoyable. And it's not just fun for a select type of person, but it's fun for all kinds of different people. And it's accepting and it's inclusive. And so I think, you know, our generation has kind of spawned a lot of that. Um, And then I think the type of people that Tiger Woods inspired to get into the game um, which has been well-documented are more mm-hmm. of these athletes. You see the Tony Finau's, um, you know, the Dustin Johnson's, the Brooks Koepka's, right? These are, these are athletes that a lot of folks know could have taken on a lot of different sports and probably been really successful at them. And instead they chose golf and that culture on a larger scale has also kind of, you know, driven people like the DJs and the Brooks Koepka's ain't going to be going after clubs where it's really stuffy and where it's, you know, they're driving a culture where, again, it's more of an athletic type culture. It's, you know, they're coming from the gym, they're wearing Nike, they're wearing different types of athletic type wear um, that is not going to be as conducive to old school country club type mentality um, and more towards this fun. There's music, there's hanging out, it's athletic, there's twirling and people are trying to be as athletic and cool as they can in the game of golf. And I think that's just kind of seeped throughout the entire golf culture, which is a good thing. Yeah, I, I think that when you look at, you know, you're in your mid-30s, uh, people who are taking on responsibility with jobs, you mentioned having families. Uh, I do think it's societal. I think it's, it, it is a reflection of, of a, you know, a generation that is taking on, you know, a leadership position in, in various companies. And when I say leadership, I mean having real responsibility in a job and, and they don't have as much time. They're more adept technology. Uh, they they want to be comfortable uh, even in the workplace. And I do think that, that is, that's representative of what we're seeing at golf clubs, specifically a place that I know means a lot to you, and that's Pinehurst. Pinehurst may be a public facility, but it's retail golf. It's representative of w- what retail golf in America looks like, and it's a very different place than it looked like 10 years ago. The cradle, music being played, the, you know, the, the large putting green, the, the, the way that people wear clothes and, and want to represent their style and what they wear. Um, I, I want to ask you because, you know, when you stay there for 99 days, not only did you drink it in as far as you drank in the whole vibe that is what is the cradle of American golf. Why did Pinehurst appeal to you the way that it has? It's a good question. I, I would say largely um, because of that culture that they've really worked hard in the last three or four years to change and to build um, and the amount of golf that's down there. You know, I, I moved to Scottsdale recently and I've, I've said, you know, when people ask me, I think North Carolina and I think the Phoenix Scottsdale area, if you're a public golfer are the two best places in the country to play golf because of several different factors. Largely there's so many options and it's a lot of really, really good golf. You know, being from St. Louis, if, if look, if you're if you're uh, wealthy and you can join a really nice club, you're going to be able to play good golf in any city in the country. It doesn't matter if you're more of a weekend public golfer without those types of means. A lot of places there aren't great public options. If you live in New York, if you live in Manhattan, you got to drive an hour, hour and a half 
take a train, you got to fight traffic just to get to a decent course. Bethpage is your best option. It's probably an hour and 15 minutes away. Bethpage is great, but for a normal person trying to work a schedule, trying to, you know, uh, have a family, have a job, it's not very feasible. And there's very few places in the country where it is. And we again could talk about Long Island golf. You could talk about Monterey golf, but if you're just playing public golf, you're going to spend an enormous amount of money. There's only a few courses. You need to stay at the resorts to play the best courses in North Carolina. There is endless, fantastic, fantastic golf. And even if you don't stay at Pinehurst, you know, Mid Pines, Pine Needles, Southern Pines, it just got redone, Tobacco Road, Mid-South, Talamore, all of these places are within 10 minutes of each other. And they're all fantastic courses. Pine Needles hosting another U.S. Women's Open next year, and you can go play it um, for a very reasonable price and get a tee time, you know, pretty easily. So, um, So that was a big draw for me, how much golf there was down there. Having spent nine years in the Boston area, uh, I loved Otto Ross. I hadn't spent a ton of time down at Piner, so pandemic was was kind of hitting. The quarantine, the shutdown was happening. I was not going to be the kind of person that's going to be stuck in Manhattan while the whole world shut down. So I just got out of there, and and Piner seemed like a a pretty good option. But I, I do think, you know, and, and Tom Pashley himself, you know, the president of Piner, so I know you know, and I know extremely well now. You know, he he's spoken a lot about when he and I, you know, have a, have a, have dinner, have a conversation about it. He says, you know, if Pinehurst was what it was four or five, 10 years ago, however long it was, he's like, I don't think you would have done the quarantine, you know, at Pinehurst. And if you did, it, it wouldn't have been what it was. You might've been bored or left after, you know, a pretty short period of time. And I think that Pinehurst is such a good example of encompassing everything that we're talking about, of having kind of the bold foresight to, evolve that resort while still maintaining what makes Pinehurst really special, right? Like Pinehurst doesn't have an ocean. It doesn't have mountains. It has history and it has fantastic fundamental golf, um, which is number two, number four, but even, you know, that, that core characteristic, how fundamentally sound and fantastic and playable yet challenging their golf courses are, they still changed both of their top two courses in the last decade they had court Crenshaw come in and completely changed the face of Piners number two they took court uh, Piners number four and completely redid it with Gil Hans and they took a few holes in the front of you know I think it was courses one and three and blew them up to create a golf course that's nine holes with speakers in the trees that you can hear from the 13th green on Piners number two I mean that is a bold series of moves for um you know a place that's 125 30 years old to make those moves and they paid off and they paid off in such a way that you're seeing, I mean, Pebble Beach just built the par three course and built a large scale putting green to kind of hook the main uh, area around Pebble Beach and the shops to their driving range. And they connected it with a par three course and a new pavilion with, with a patio and drinks and a putting course. Um, so you're seeing people, clubs, um, resorts sort of follow that model of, wow, we have to have a little bit more of a dynamic, fun um, overall environment, take ourselves a little bit less seriously to draw, you know, this younger generation to our resort um, and places that weren't doing that felt like they were left behind. I think Pebble Beach was one of them a little bit where don't get me wrong. Pebble Beach still getting, oh, yeah. you know, $2,000 every 10 minutes on their T-sheet. But um, but I think that they saw we don't want to get left behind. Um, and so Pioneers is a really good example of having um, that foresight, having made the bold decisions 
and it's paying off there. I mean, you couldn't can't get a, a tea time there probably for the rest of the year. You really can't, you know, find booking in their hotels. They're looking into building new hotels because the demand is so high. So, um, so they've done an incredible job. Anybody that's been there, you know, they understand that you can get that history. You can have this incredibly fun experience. It's laid back while also being a place that's got Donald Ross all over the place. That's got Jack Nicholas and Payne Stewart and Tiger Woods have played major championships there. And that's just a really, really difficult thing to, to capture and preserve while still evolving. And they've just done a phenomenal job of it. Yeah, they really have. They continue to, they've, they've touched all, all the right chords over the last 10 years when Tom took over uh, from Mr. Padgett. Uh, I couldn't agree more. You know, you mentioned that the common man and, and look, Clearly, you've got mass appeal, but you also have, you know, a, a tremendous following among people, young professionals, men and women, uh, you know, demographically, when you look at 30s, 40s, 50s, do you find yourself having to be sensitive to the fact that, you, you yeah, the, the common guy didn't have access to Cypress Point, but you do. And, and th these other places that you've had the good fortune to be invited to, to play, um, do you find yourself balancing, you know, sharing these experience with a lot of people who, quite frankly, are never going to? Definitely. A hundred percent. And, you know, I think there's, there's always going to be an element of people do enjoy living vicariously through others to a degree. So, you know, I, if I'm out, if, if I'm exclusively posting you know, um, content from Cypress Point or Whisper Rock or, you know, uh, uh, Friars Head, I think it'd be very easy to lose your audience. But I do think, you know, trying to, and we do, um, we try to do um, dynamic kind of um, publication of content, right? Where, you know, when we went to Northern Michigan for our travel series, we went to Forest Dunes, which is incredible. And we experienced the loop and we experienced Forest Dunes. And then we went to a place called Bailey Farms where you could play for, you know, under a hundred dollars. That's sort of the hidden gem up near Traverse City. Um, so we do try to kind of um, convey to, to folks uh, different levels of, you know, means how you can, how you can play great golf, fun golf, whatever. But yeah, we absolutely have to be sensitive to that because you don't want to come off like you've, um, like you've lost, you know, your, your core audience that made you who you are, who follows you day in and day out. So, you know, we do, um, each week I put out about five to eight, um, videos on my own, whether it's a thing called the daily nine, where it's just me trying to work on my game. Um, whether it's, you know, rigs verse X course, where I pretty much pick their signature hole, do some drone footage and try to do a bite-sized review of a golf course. And during those, you know, I try to get to as many places as, as folks can go, usually most most golfers can have the means to go experience and play so that they can sort of see what i thought of these courses and make a decision if they're on a trip or if they're just that's where they live and they haven't driven the 45 minutes out there or whatever um but a hundred percent something that that i try to be sensitive about while you know also realizing um that it's an opportunity it's an opportunity to kind of tell people on our podcast or through video, whatever, whatever that medium might be, um, what it was like to, to do X, Y, or Z, because, you know, even if everybody can't get on Cyprus, which newsflash they can't, you know, they can have a similar experience in their hometown with whatever club it might be. That is, that is sort of their white whale that, um, again, it might not be a Cyprus, but if it's this, this, you know, top 15 private club in your home city, 
and you know that, you know, three Saturdays from now, your boss was able to get you out there and they can relate to me talking about walking up to the uh, 15th and 16th tees at Cyprus and be like, I felt like that on this part three of my home course where, you know, I was so nervous. I've been thinking about this shot for two months straight. And again, it might not be Cyprus, but people have those types of experiences and can relate to them. And so, you know, if we can't somehow relate the nervousness, the feelings of being uncomfortable, um, in some situations on the golf course or at a certain club or at a place where you might not feel like you can, if we can't relate that experience to the people that don't follow us, then we're not doing a good job at, at what we do. So, um, so yeah, it's definitely something we need to be sensitive about, but I also think it's an opportunity to kind of um, relate to people to allow them to live vicariously through us having these crazy experiences and, and hopefully they enjoy it. Well, why do you think, and, and with, I haven't come across anybody player wise uh, that doesn't feel some type of, you know, reception between you guys and them. And there, there are certain guys like Kevin Kisner in particular, who you have a kinship with that is bona fide beyond just, you know, doing a 30 minute interview with. Why do you think all these tour players, all of them have been ro so receptive to you guys? It's a good question. You know, I think, um, I think probably the main reason uh, is because they learn a lot about us, you know, like we don't uh, from our seats kind of in the golf media world. Um, sure. We're going to ask them questions and we're going to do interviews with them. But one thing I've learned a lot from the different players that we interact with is a lot of times they're very curious about us and we're very willing and open and transparently willing to tell them, you know, about that. What's it like to be us? Hey, Trent, I heard you just broke a hundred. How nervous were you, you know, when you were on this hole? And I think that in media, um, a lot of times it's a one way street. It is the media person asking and trying to, you know, um, get inside the mind, inside the world, inside the life of the player. And I think that one thing, you know, we're very open and willing to convey is that, you know, we, we're happy to be their friends and hang out with them. And we, we're not uh, bound by some, uh, you know, boundary in, in journalism that doesn't allow that. We do, I, I do believe certain people probably should be, and there needs to be um, obviously reporting and, and sort of the more um, standard classic form of journalism in golf. And I, and I, and I love that. I follow, you know, Kyle Porter wrote an amazing piece about the Ryder Cup mm -hmm. that I sent him just a note. It was like, that was, you know, somebody's ability to utilize their access and their observations and put it in the written form um, that that gets lost a lot now. And, and I thought his piece was incredibly powerful and an incredibly solid use of his sort of, of access. And we use it completely differently, right? We use it largely to try to showcase to people the personalities of these players, of these men and women on the different tours who might just blend in on a leaderboard week in and week out as another name, another person that looks a little bit robotic. They're focused on what they're doing. And it's really hard a lot of times to figure out why you should root for one person over the other. Um, you know, what is it about them? What do they like to do? Who are they as people? Cause at the end of the day, we're all just people. They just, their profession is they're on TV walking inside the ropes, trying to hit golf shots and trying to make money. You know, somebody else's might be, they're working a sales gig, they're working in finance, they're working on course maintenance and they're out in the tractor all day. Um, and so what I think we've hopefully been able to bring to a lot of the players 
is this two-way street of like, yeah, come on our show with us and let's hang out. Let's just, let's chat. Let's have a conversation. You know, we are barstool sports. Like we're at a bar sitting on a bar stool. There's a TV on, there's things going on in the world. What would you talk about? You know? And, and point is like, if, if I had an hour and I just ran into a Kevin Kisner or a Joel Damon or a Max Homa or Matthew Fitzpatrick at that bar for an hour or two hours, we wouldn't run out of things to talk to talk about, we, you know, it'd be no problem. We, and people would probably find it pretty interesting. And so why don't we just do it on a podcast? And so I think that we've luckily been able to kind of convey that, whether it's our personalities, whether it's talent, I don't know what the hell it is, but I think that we're able to convey that to players. And I think that, you know, luckily it's added up that we've, we've done it enough times. We have relationships with enough players that we've been able to sort of recruit more, if you will, into our, into our circle. And I know it, it wasn't uncommon for, you know, I think Bubba Watson asked like Justin Thomas after he was on our show, like, Hey, what was it like with those guys? You know? And mm -hmm. he's like, actually, I really like those guys. It was great. So I know some of that goes out there on tour. And, and then the other thing I would say is the barstool brand. I mean, Dave Portnoy, my boss, he's done an incredible job over 20 years of, of building the reputation of barstool sports to its fans and especially to um, athletes and celebrities where he's built very legitimate friendships and relationships with dozens and dozens now hundreds, if not thousands of kind of athletes, professional athletes and celebrities that love what they see on Barstool, whether it's on Pardon My Take or on a different show um, that is appealing to them. They want to kind of um, utilize, I guess, kind of our following and, and what we do at Barstool to, to showcase who they are. Um, and I think that there's definitely a little bit of a calculation on a lot of the, on a lot of the players' minds. I, I would, you know, I, I would give them the, um, the respect that I think they're smart enough to realize like, yeah, if I go on and I have a good show with these guys, like I think their audience will probably like me. So I think a part of it is, is going to be that for sure. I think we've been called um, image rehab at one point when we were having, you know, certain players on who were going through a hard time in the media who were getting more crap than they wanted to be getting. I'm like, come on and we'll see how it goes. And if it goes really well and we're laughing and we're jovial, you know, a lot of our fans will really um, kind of turn a corner with that player sometimes, or, or at least find out things they didn't previously know. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it, it's probably a combination of different things, but, um, but yeah, I think largely it's just being a, being a two-way street, um, they can come on and give us a hard time, just like we can give them a hard time on their show. You know, I always say when I get into it with a player and uh, if, if they're not happy or they think that we're uh, uh, making fun of them, whatever I say, go listen to one of our shows. You know who we make fun of the most? Ourselves. Make fun of ourselves all of the time. And we're going to make jokes about anyone on tour. None of it is to be taken personally. If someone does take it personally, I get it. Um, you know, there's enough to deal with in this world that if you don't want to deal with us, I totally understand it. Um, but we give everyone a hard time. If we see something, you know, that we find there's a good joke in there, we can make somebody laugh. We're going to do it pretty much at anybody's expense, you know, hoping and understanding that they realize we give ourselves the most crap of anybody. Um, and I think luckily most of those players have, have figured that out. They love that. It's a little bit of a back and forth that it's a two-way street. We can roast them at any time they can roast us. And I think that just makes people more relatable. Uh, competition wise, you know, I, this came to a head with with old golf media. I don't know if it was three years ago, whenever it was um, it w in, in new golf media. And I don't even know what the definition of either one is. Who is your competition? That's a good question. You know, I would say probably other younger uh, golf outlets, but even them, you know, I, 
whether it's the no laying up crew, whether it's uh, Andy and the fried egg crew, right. That's probably who people would mostly see as our competition. But, you know, I would say they're even a little bit more um, deep and entrenched in a lot of the hardcore kind of golf, um, uh, not nerdy stuff, but they're a little bit more, it's golf's been an enormous part, I think more of all of their lives. And I think that our crew found golf for the most part a little bit later in life and has allowed us to appeal more to an audience that 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 happened to i think a lot of the people that that listen to our show or a lot of our biggest fans sort of went through a similar timeline and, and trajectory in terms of falling in love with the game of golf um that allows us to be uh relatable to them so e my whole point saying that is even though i guess we're competitors i do think that people find the sh the products to be significantly different um so who who our true competitors are i i don't 100 percent know and um i i mean i guess if if it uh if it came to a head we would probably find out someday but i i don't really know exactly who our direct competitors would be again just because i think what we do is pretty drastically different from others who are you know similar age to us or yep. would be considered like alternative golf media um, and we're, look, we're Barstool Sports. We can say whatever we want. We're completely unfiltered. Um, and I don't know that a, that a ton of other outlets are like that. And that might turn some people off, but I also think it, it appeals to a lot of people. So, uh, I just think that we're pretty different and it'd be hard to find, um, direct competitors, whether that's good or bad. You know, the autonomy that you have, there, there's no doubt. And I I've said this about Barstool, uh, you know, you've strapped yourself to, to rocket fuel, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's up to you to determine how effective you're going to be, of which you've been very effective. Have you sensed in your own mind, uh, which is a good one, that your autonomy, just simply because of access, USGA, PGA of America, the PGA Tour, uh, th these entities have given you bona fide access to covering the, these events. H have you felt that you've compromised anything in the last couple of years? Ooh, I would say we try not to, um, but it, it depends, you know, on, um, it depends on the situation, right? Like I think naturally um, I'm a bit of a pleaser. So like, I, I just like to, to please people. So I imagine that that has probably played in at times to whether it's um, access or whether it's uh, not going as hard at somebody as maybe we otherwise, you know, would, I, I imagine that's played in at some point, but a lot of it too is, is probably um, because of those relationships that, you know, we've built where things do change. I mean, we got banned from the PGA tour for a year or two um, because of our first incident on site where, you know, we were asked to take a video down. We didn't like that. We told that story. Um, we, we called the PGA tour some names for that. Then they called and asked us, uh, said that they would never work with us again because of what we said. And then we told that story and said, now they're really X, Y, and Z. So, uh, and then, you know, a few months ago at the Northern Trust, you know, we had um, amazing access up in, in one of the towers and, and driving range access and whatnot. So, you know, I think a lot of it is um, relationship based. And, and one thing that I've learned is that everything is relationship based. Everything is, is based on people, whether it's a, a PGA Tour player, you know, that player has um, a family and a caddy and a coach who depend on that person and their success and you're affecting all of those lives when you say certain things so um so yeah we're just normal people with emotions and relationships that that's probably going to affect we would love for it not to but but then again we're not also on some um 
divine, you know, incredibly important mission where we can't compromise X, Y, or Z. We're a golf podcast. So at the end of the day, if people, um, you know, get upset about that, then uh, I, there's times where I could see it, where I could see a reasonable person would, would have that thought. And we're happy to go back and forth, happy to debate it. Um, that's largely what we do. But, but at the end of the day, when people do get upset or do kind of uh, try to criticize about a certain thing, you know, it, it's a golf podcast and we do golf YouTube videos and we're talking about a golf tournament. Um, and, and that's the, the more important thing is sort of, um, the actual people and their feelings and their, you know, their lives and, and being in a good, healthy place, um, physically, mentally, all that, like that stuff's more important than getting, getting into a back and forth about really stupid stuff, um, in the golf world. And, you know, another thing like the barstool, um, you know, the rocket ship and the autonomy and us being different and me really thinking that I, I don't know if we have any direct competitors is that, you know, being part of, of Barstool Sports, we all got hired at Barstool Sports, the four of us that do our show, to do something differently than we currently do. And we do other things. I mean, Trent Ryan, uh, you know, he's on um, one of our, our, our top, you know, pop and entertainment show called Chicks in the Office with Fran and Rhea, and he does Bachelor recaps, and he tweets about Bachelor. I mean, he had bras thrown at him on stage last Thursday and Friday night in Boston doing a live show because he talks about The Bachelor. Frankie Borelli is a drummer in a fake pop band that sells out theaters <laughs> across the country, and he films pizza reviews all the time for one of the most famous people in all of, of sports media um, who does pizza reviews. Frankie had his name on a NASCAR. It said, like, all right, Frankie is on a literal NASCAR that drove around the track. So, you know, I, I did a white, I did an interview in the White House last year when the pandemic hit um, with the chief of staff of the vice president of the United States. So, like, we all do different things. And yeah, we've now kind of narrowed our focus more on golf. But what sets us apart is that we are part of kind of this, this controlled chaos that is Barstool Sports where we do a lot of different stuff to try to keep people entertained and, and to try to, um, you know, hopefully make people laugh, right? That's kind of our main ethos is if we can just get people to laugh and, and kind of enjoy their day and take themselves a little bit less seriously, then we're successful. Um, we've just sort of narrowed that focus on our favorite thing in the world, um, which is golf. And, and so here we are. But I think, again, that's another big part of, of what makes us pretty different. You know, when you did the Let Them Play event, which, you know, for those folks unfamiliar, the NCAA Women's Golf Tournament, there was a regional site that they canceled the event because the conditions of the golf course, according to the, the people who were running that sectional qualifier, uh, was, was not fit for tournament play. You jumped in there. You knew it wasn't going to be. Uh, for people to advance to the NCAA championships, but you wanted to give them, uh, these women, an opportunity to play. Two things. A lot of people, when you do anything that seems to be benevolent, they think you're trying to curry favor. Uh, and and I don't even know what that means necessarily. And then uh, two, did, did something inside you as a college athlete who played a non-revenue producing sport, who played in relative anonymity, uh, alongside guys that you'd live and die for to this day. Did that touch you, first of all? And and, and secondly, um, were you trying to curry favor in any way? Well, look, what I, what I would answer to that is, you know, anytime um, people get uh, positive PR, it's probably because they're doing something positive. Right. That's really pretty much that simple. Um, you know, I, I cried at the opening speech uh, when we welcomed, you know, uh, the 
I think we had nearly 50 girls out of the uh, 70 or 80 that um, were supposed to play in regionals, you know, and just kind of, I gave a, just a five minute spiel saying, Hey, you know, welcome um, to Phoenix. There's a ton of people watching you. We had videos from Scott Van Pelt, Justin Thomas, JJ Watt, that just kind of expressed, Hey, like you guys deserve um, to play, you deserve to finish your college seasons on the golf course with your teammates, with your coaches, you know, not uh, crying down in Baton Rouge and, and then taking car rides home in some really negative environment. So unless I'm Leonardo DiCaprio and I'm one of the great actors of all time, it's like that clearly just affected me on a very emotional level um, because of a lot of the reasons you just laid out, which is, you know, college sports is one of the coolest things in the world. Um, the mascots, the school songs, the colors, you know, where you go to college becomes such an important part of most people's identities for the rest of their lives. They become part of the alumni network. They're wearing sweaters and winter hats and gear and they're texting their friends all the time about how the football team's doing or how the golf program's doing or whatever sport they may be into. And so you only get those four or five years if you're COVID senior, however long it might be, where those memories that you then cherish literally forever to the point where they drive you to do all those things I just mentioned. Um, you're only actually in that moment for four years, which is not very long. And so to have two of those years for a lot of these players be looked at pretty negatively, one with the pandemic and a lot of things being canceled. And then two, you know, with um, what happened down at Baton Rouge and them not having the opportunity to play, it just struck me and it struck clearly because it went so viral. It struck millions of people the wrong way. And so we, you know, instead of just tweeting about it, it's very similar to what happened with the Barstool Fund where, you know, Dave and Barstool Sports has raised over $40 million for small businesses, largely restaurants and whatnot that haven't been allowed to be open. You know, instead of just tweeting about stuff and being upset about stuff, we sort of looked at it and we're like, I think actually if anybody could do something about this, I think it's us. So um, I got the blessing from Dave Portnoy, from Erica Nardini, who's our CEO. And once that happened, you know, we have a team in place that puts on this year, we put on 27 golf tournaments across the country. Um, so we know what we're doing. We had the following week open uh, a bunch of people on my staff that work with me. were supposed to have the week pretty much off. Every one of them was like, I'm in, let's go to Phoenix. I live obviously Phoenix, Scottsdale area. Let's find a golf course. Let's make it happen. Um, and that meant a lot to us. We were on zoom calls with um, many of the young women from different teams who were incredibly curious, inquisitive. Um, they wanted to know if we were in it for, you know, um, the right reasons why we were doing it. And they bounced a bunch of stuff off of us in terms of, you know, what, what is this really all about? Um, and ultimately we were able to convince um, the vast, vast majority of them to come to our event. Um, there were just a lot of tears. There was a lot of excitement. There were mm -hmm. parents and family members that, that showed up, that traveled out there that were, you know, hugging us and, and our staff and thanking us for everything that they did. And anytime, you know, you can work towards something that genuinely affects people in a positive way, um, then it almost makes every other thing you ever work towards seem like the biggest waste of time in the world. You know, and I had Lisa Litback, who's our head of live events at yep. Barstool Sports, who works in all these events with me. You know, she just sent me a note at one point. She was just like, I've been doing events for 25 years. She's like, this is the most fulfilling thing I've ever worked on. And it's not even close. So for us, um, I, we don't give a shit what other people said. Uh, like that whole crew that was there that experienced it. And I think a lot of people witnessed it through the internet, through the, the content we were able to put out. Kind of, they, they thought it was awesome too. But as long as those girls had a great time, which they did, as long as it was meaningful, um, then it was totally worth it for us. So, so yeah, I mean, in, in the almost six years I've been at Barstool Sports, 
nothing's come even close to just how cool and, and powerful and fun that weekend was like watching these girls play golf, watching uh, women's college golf up close. Like I haven't paid enough attention to that level of golf ever. Not even close. I'd seen almost no shots and seeing how good they were was like, Oh shit. And, and how cool they were like the Mississippi state girls were, uh, you know, jumping into each other and giving each other high fives after good tee shots. And you're just like, this is real college sports. Um, a few of the teams showed up on private jets. I think uh, yeah, uh, Mississippi State, I know, showed up on their jet. Their AD said, you know, if you guys get approval from the NCAA, you can take the jet out there. So just having all that go on um, for us was was the coolest thing probably I'll ever do at, at Barstool Sports. Well, the fact that you got the waiver from the NCAA is one of the great Hail Marys uh, to do it in the amount of time you did it in is is remarkable. Uh, and I, I, again, I, I thought it was it was fabulous for the game of golf and obviously specifically women's golf. Uh, two more before I let you jump. Tiger, I know you saw you were probably the first one to see the photo of him watching Charlie at that junior event uh, the other day. Nobody has been nobody has been more bullish with the belief that he will be back and he will play and he will play at the highest level. Um how vital is it just, I mean, we don't know whether he will or he won't, uh, that he play again. Look, Tiger Woods could, um, shut it all down, delete all of his social media accounts, never be in the public eye ever again. Um, and that wouldn't really affect anything about his legacy and the impact that he's had on the game of golf. If he just wanted to go sail off into the sunset, spend time with his family on an Island or in Florida um, and live the next, you know, 30, 40 years um, living a quiet as normal life as a human being could live. That would be fantastic. I think it would be, um, it would be completely unimportant to the future of his legacy. And honestly, I would clap and be like, kudos to him. I don't think it's in his bones to do that. I think he lives for golf. Golf is a part of him um, to his core, to the point where you see Ricky Fowler, you see these guys putting out quotes about like, yeah, he's in his living room, he's rehabbing and he's got his golf clubs next to him. Like, I don't think it's a um, coincidence that he's got those golf clubs next to him. I don't think it's, um, I, I think people need to realize that he could have easily, um, you know, given up at this point, years ago when he had the back surgeries, when he was after back surgery, number two, back surgery, number three, how difficult it was for him to come back from that, how miserable rehab is, how miserable he admitted that he was at times where he couldn't get up and couldn't walk. All he wanted to do was spend that time with his kids. Nobody would have blamed him in any way if he just packed it up and said, you know, I gave it my best golf's not doing it for me anymore. I think golf does do it for him a lot more. I think Phil Mickelson winning um, continues to inspire him. I think him winning the masters and that lighting a fighter under Charlie Woods and that making Charlie become as obsessed with the game of golf as he is. I think that drives Tiger Woods to continue to be a force and a presence on the highest you know stage that he possibly can be on golf. I think he wants to deliver, you know, for his family, um, more of those memories like he had in 2019. He doesn't need to in any way. Um, his kids probably think he doesn't need to in any way, but this is a man who has figured out for 40 something years of his life, how to drive himself to continue to be one of the better players in the world of golf. I think he will for as long as he possibly can continue to find reasons to drive himself in the game of golf. Um, and I don't think we're going to see that end at all. Like I said, as long as he physically 
is able to swing a golf club again, which from all of the reports, it's going to take a little while, obviously take a year or two years to rehab and get back. But he figured it out, you know, with a back that he had to surgically fuse together. Um, he won a U.S. Open on a broken leg and a torn Achilles. I mean, that guy is going to figure out again. He's not going to be 2000 Tiger. He's not going to dominate to the level that he did, but he will find himself, in my opinion, um, good enough again to get into these situations where instinct, ability, memories, um, experience take over, and he will again win massive golf tournaments. I, again, in my mind, have absolutely zero doubt, had zero doubt before. Everybody said he should retire. Um, people said it was sad at times. And he delivered the greatest golf moment, you know, in the history. A lot of people in this generation will mm. be the best sports moment they'll ever, ever have. When Tiger Woods is, is walking up 18, that two and a half minutes afterwards when he's walking with his family and everybody's chanting his name, that guy ain't going to just go away quietly. So if he can walk and he can form a golf swing again, which it looks like he's on that trajectory to being able to do so, there's no doubt in my mind he's going to win golf tournaments again. Yeah, I, I, I think that the 82 and 15 in his mind, because of what the last 15 years have been in his life, for all different reasons, make him feel incomplete, that there is there's something else out there uh, to do. And I, I was lucky enough, I walked every step of those 70 shots that he struck on that Sunday in 2019, was behind the 18th green, was stone in my place because of the, the foot trap and everything for 15 minutes. And it's one of the great sporting moments uh, to, to, to walk every step of my lifetime. Uh, not, even, not even close. And I, I'm with you that there is there's something about him uh, that, that is going to drive him to do everything he can, whether it's on once every year, once every you know, five times a year, whatever it may be. Uh, that there is another mountain for him to climb. Let me leave you with this, uh, with this question. What in 22 do you want to do that you've never done in golf? I'd like to shoot under par. I think that would be really cool. Yeah. I know that that's, there's a lot of different things that we do in the world of golf. Um, you know, I, like many people, I'm obsessed with just trying to get better all of the time. It's, you know, I think about it all the time. I think about my swing all the time. And, you know, somebody asked me a few months ago, like, what do you consider if you play around with somebody, what do you consider somebody to be like good at golf? I said, honestly, if you can shoot, somebody can shoot in the mid eighties or something. I'm like, that's good. I think golf is so hard that I think shooting a legitimate round in the mid eighties or so, if you tell somebody I shot 84 today, I'm like, that person could par about half the holes. They maybe made a birdie or two. They had a few doubles, a few blowups. Like if you can go out to a legitimate golf course, you can hit a tee shot. You can hit an iron in or near the green. You can get it up and down and roll that little ball into that tiny hole from that far away and do it like nine times. That's really, really good. Um, and and so, you know, I've been an 80s golfer for um, a really long time. This year I made some changes in my swing, got down pretty low, um, but I've, I've shot 72, 73 a few different times, not very consistently at all. But I think if I could hang my hat someday and be like, I posted a round of golf under par for how much time and effort and thinking that I do about the game of golf, I just think that'd be the most incredible personal accomplishment in the world because I just don't have that much natural skill at the game. Um, so if I could do something like that, uh, that would that would just be phenomenal for me. 
well, we know you keep trying the, the, the nine for nine every single day. If people don't care or, or people don't realize how much he does care uh, every day, he's working on it. Uh, plus, you met, we talked about Piners and you talked passionately about it. I know that's going to become a bigger part of your life uh, going forward. Listen, enjoy the holidays. Uh, it was good to see you at, at, at the Ryder Cup and hopefully golf for us in the new year. Thank you, my friend. Terry, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. I'm uh, happy to come on anytime. Thank you. Well, thank you again to Riggs from Barstool Sports and the Poor Play Pod. Uh, I think you can tell that he can chirp uh, for a living, and he's very good at it, and he's got a very bright mind. Uh, and interesting to get his thoughts on not only his path, but also, you know, the, the impact that people can make in the game in different and varied ways in which uh, they are clearly doing that. Now, we will make... Not necessarily a 180 next week, but next week, the USGA CEO, Mike Wan, will join us. Uh, he's got a lot of interesting things on his plate because of what he inherits by virtue of the Distance Insights report, which has been sitting there for almost a year now. And with all the pandemic issues that we've dealt with, it's now going to be front and center for the USGA. But again, you can find all of Riggs' stuff, all of his social handles, uh, the foreplay pod, and of course, Barstool Sports and uh, the giant entity that they are. So Mike Wan next week, you got the uh, CJ Cup on the PGA Tour this week. Great field. We're looking forward uh, to rehashing that as well next week. Thanks for spending a little time with us on this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. We'll talk to you next week.